Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. Yeah, my first book was actually about online dating. It was in 2012. I needed a little bit of money and I, I went to a workshop and the guy said, I wrote this book in a week. And, you know, I thought, oh, I could do that. So I went away and wrote a book in a week about online dating. This is The Real Bottom Line where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, my guest is the great Debbie Adams. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you very much. So glad to be here. I am so excited, Debbie, because you have had an amazing journey in your life. Um, you know, the ups, the downs, the twists, and, and now here you are as an entrepreneur extraordinaire. So, but let's go back in time. Tell us how you got, tell us your journey into this. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy one. It is a crazy one. First of all, I want to start by saying that I did not have a lemonade stand when I was a kid. I never had a hunger to be self-employed. That, you know, that I can't look back to my roots and say, oh, it was always there. And I was also the mom who, uh, when my daughter came home from volleyball selling chocolate bars, I purchased a whole bag and often ate the whole bag, just saying. <laughs> so no entrepreneurial roots. Um, I call myself a forced or reluctant entrepreneur. I, um, you know, lost my career as a result of vision loss and I had the best career in the world. I've never felt so lit up as I felt when I was in the military. And uh, then at, at age 40, um, my marriage failed and it put me in the awful position of trying to support a child on a disability pension. And as a, a blue collar worker, we believe that if you have a university degree, it kind of opens every door. You know, it's that uh, misconception about university. And I went to university and for five full years, full time, living on, you know, peanuts and uh, stuck it out with the, the certainty in my mind that when I was done, I was just going to show that certificate and I'd get a job. And it didn't happen. I applied for 3,000 jobs in Nova Scotia and uh, nobody would hire me. I, I, I didn't, I, went, I was a different person back then than I am now. I think if I was doing it again now, I would do it differently. Um, but um, in 2011, my daughter went to Memorial University and um, well, I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit. We had had, we lived in a house and it, there came a time where I couldn't pay my bills. And I actually had a foreclosure notice in the morning and, you know, somebody bought the house in the afternoon and she had to live through that. And the next year I couldn't even get a place in my own name. So I was, at, you know, essentially homeless. Uh -huh. And then she went to university. When she went to university, that kind of gave me the freedom to broaden where it was I was going to look for work. And so I put all of my stuff into storage and I went to Ontario and um, started doing the same thing, putting in uh, resumes, but I had the same barriers to employment. So 
I saw a posting one day for uh, teach you how to be an entrepreneur. It was for disabled people. And I thought, uh, first of all, I didn't like to identify as a disabled person, but I was at the end of the rope, you know, I, I was getting older and worn down and my mental health was being impacted by poverty. And so I took the class and at the end of the class, we had, uh, you know, our uh, finishing up interview with the uh, director. And he said to me, you know, there are a lot of disabled people here that will be very limited in what they can monetize because of their abilities. But he said, really, if I knew what you knew, if I had your body of knowledge, I would be a millionaire and you're almost homeless. And me being me, I went away slightly pissed off about that and uh but I did what I didn't normally do and that was I went back and said what is it that I'm supposed to be doing then like how come you can take what I know and make money at it but I can't and that started my journey into entrepreneurship it's funny how one question can change everything mm. I think that's why I, I believe strongly in the power of the question. And I feel like the questions are more important than knowing the, knowing the answers, knowing where the answers are, because everything changes so much. But well, Absolutely. And we remember those questions, right? Like I, that day, it was like something shifted inside me that day. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And so um, I know you've done things. Um, so you, you did taxes for a while. You coach entrepreneurs. Um, where do you think your sweet spot is right now? Well, first, let me tell you what I've done, and then I'll tell you about my sweet spot. I started out doing uh, diversity training with women in trades. Uh, Newfoundland was developing the oil and gas industry. Uh, they had committed to 5% uh, women across the board at all levels of organization. And I was a very successful woman in a male dominated environment. So I, I had gotten a certificate in adult education and I went and tried to sell to the oil and gas industry, but I didn't know how to sell. So I did what this guy, you know, the guy that had uh, challenged me on uh, getting into the knowledge industry. He told me that if you don't have enough money, you need to take a job. So I took a job do, managing a tax office. So I really got hired for my management skills, not for my tax skills. Yeah. But while I was there, I, um, I did do a certification in taxes. And I had a look at the back end of the business. And I thought, oh, my heavens. I've already figured out that if you break things down into like bite-sized pieces, you can achieve anything. Yeah. Um, it's the way that they built Canada Arm, right? It started out with one guy on a piece of paper saying, imagine if we could get outside of this thing and do some repairs. And so I, while I was there, I was paying attention to the business side of it. And then I left there and started doing business coaching for my tax clients. So for the tax clients that I had acquired in that business mm. and uh, the contractors were all struggling with things that I knew how to do. I'm a mechanic by trade and I've been to law school. So when this guy was talking about the, the, you know, the depth of my knowledge, that's what he was talking about. So I knew how to do contracts and tenders and all kinds of stuff. I didn't know how to monetize it. Mm. So I started coaching the business uh, clients. I gave up the diversity piece. I changed the name of my business. And I then offered, from then on, business coaching and taxes. I still do business coaching and taxes. That's so. awesome. 
what 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 do you, what do you like about business coaching? Um, what does it do for you, and how do you approach that? <clears throat> Uh, so what it does for me is um, I come from a background of people who have not enjoyed a tremendous amount of success financially or otherwise. And I was one of those people. And I had a little bit of learned helplessness going into the whole reinvention thing. And I particularly like helping people who don't really have access to the resources, which is why my body of knowledge is around that you know, around a very unique piece that I've created. So the people that I help are very, they could be a business person with a million in revenue who's never had a business course at all. And he's going into a contract, uh, you know, into a negotiation charging one quarter of what he should be getting paid. I, one of my pet peeves is, is people in the know ripping off people who don't know. Mm. So I like to take those people who don't know and, and come alongside using my model, which is the apprenticeship model, and teach them how to negotiate for higher prices. I'd like to dig into this learned helplessness for a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, and in this, and um, tell me more of what that is and how can you, if, if I were to say, what, what am I doing then that would mean that I have maybe some of that? Like, how can I self-identify if I have learned helplessness? Yeah, interesting. And I don't profess to be a psychologist. I no. only know my own psychology. So yeah. um, when I was 37, when I was still married, I was looking for jobs. The same barriers to employment. And some of those barriers are around not being able to drive. But other barriers, because I was, uh, you know, a mechanic with some admin skills, it was really an entry-level position. This was pre-university. Um, I was. I knew that as an entry-level position, you would be expected to do the room setup, or you know, make sure you you would need to use your vision. Uh -huh. So the barriers that I had didn't make me suitable for entry-level because I couldn't do all of that stuff that you would expect me to do. And so, at the age of thirty-seven, and I don't mind saying I'm fifty-eight now. Um, I went to the eye doctor and I was telling her about all this frustration about finding work. And she said, Debbie, I'll tell you what I've been telling you for five years now. You could get Canada Pension Disability if you wanted to. You're legally blind. And, um, you know, it, at least it'll be a bit of money. And that day I was exasperated and said, let's do it. Let's apply for that. And I can still feel, you know, the burn of, of, of being there. I never, the person that I am today would never have done that because I would have thought there was more beyond mm. uh, where we were. Like there's, there's a whole world full of opportunity out there. But I didn't know that. You know, I, I had never met anybody who pushed beyond the, well, I'm disabled, I should want disability pension for the rest of my life. And that's the end of the road. I didn't learn about learned helplessness. My minor's in psychology and I have a ton of coaching courses and I've studied growth and fixed mindset. And it was in that literature that I started to see, oh, oh, that's what I, that was my affliction. It's that learned helplessness. And the learned helplessness really is that attitude about, I'll never learn it, or it's the end of the road for me, or those opportunities are not there for me. It's that I, you know, I see it in a lot of people. I don't coach people who aren't curious about it because if you're in full on learned helplessness, you're really not even going to read what I want you to read or study what, 
what I'd want you to study. So I'm, I will say that you're definitely not learned. Uh, you don't have learned helplessness if you're taking courses to better yourself. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like learned helplessness is a bit about seeing barriers no matter what and accepting them. Yes, absolutely. And it's about not being curious. You know, it's about not being inquisitive. And I've spoken to a lot of people that have been negatively impacted during COVID. And I say to them, I know you're waiting for the government to bail you out of this situation, but where is there another revenue stream that we can kind of nurture and grow? And there are people that will just, you know, given up, I'm not doing that, you know, because they see their only solution being the one that the government hands them. So right. there is a correlation between dependencies and learned helplessness. It's not a popular topic. People don't like talk about it. I don't imagine. <laughs> well, it, it was interesting. We've had other guests that talk a lot about how their success really started happening when they took a big look inside and understood what was going on there. So it sounds like you've been on a journey of self-exploration as well to get to where you are today. Without a doubt. And I, for me, I think it was taking big leaps. So at, at the five-year point in 2015, I wasn't gaining enough traction in business and I didn't really know about the online world yet. So the only thing that I knew with my limited knowledge was that if I opened a storefront, people would know I existed. Mm -hmm. So before 2015, nobody uh, would have known who, who I was, you know, I was renting little classrooms in the basement of church or a community center or traveling to Digby to do a workshop. Nobody really knew who I was. So I took that big, bold move and opened, um, you know, the storefront. I didn't know how to operate a debit machine or do anything associated. And I know that you've had uh, commercial properties, uh, but, um, what I did know was that I was not afraid of ever looking stupid. That's never bothered me because that's, that's like the most courageous place for any learner to be. And I know I'd learn on the fly. I knew I was very good at taking on stuff I didn't know how to do and figuring it out. So um, it was that in combination with all of the work I had done on myself that made me really self-aware. Yeah. So the interesting piece that I find fascinating is um, you meet so many people who say they have a book in them and they, they're going to write a book. Well, you've written a whole bunch of them. So tell us about the journey. What made you decide to become an author? Are you self-published? And, and, and what, what made you do that? Yeah, my first book was actually about online dating. It was in 2012. I needed a little bit of money. And I, I went to a workshop and the guy said, I wrote this book in a week. And you know, I thought, oh, I could do that. So I went away and wrote a book in a week about online dating. I had a background in occupational health and safety. So I looked at it from that slant, like how not to get taken advantage of online. And I sold 500 copies. I had no desire to go into uh, teaching people about online dating, but I needed some fast cash. And I like cash in a flash. So um, I self-published that book, like locally. It was a hard copy. I did it at a, a you know, a press here in the city. Um, the next book I wrote was my little book about money mindset. Mm. And that was where I started to talk about what I refer to as the bias bundle, but in particular, the money piece. So in my bias bundle, I have the networking piece. Oh, you know, matters. Let's not pretend it doesn't. And uh, then the money mindset piece. And that was 
<clears throat> excuse me, all about the internal shift that I had gone through. You know, I went from um, having a heart to serve, which made me a really good employee and an excellent soldier uh, because I love to serve to an industry where I have to shift into that profit motive without sacrificing my heart to serve. So I had to grow to love making money. And that was really painful for me. Uh, you know, I charged five times for coaching, five times what I used to charge in 2015, because, you know, in order to stay competitive, I needed to. And I needed to tell people about my journey. That book went out probably four years ago. And uh, there's no doubt I would add to it because I've grown. And then I've written in, um, I've written in a compilation with other business coaches across the country. I now have a book that, that is, I'm waiting for Pottersfield Press to let me know if, uh, if they will accept it. And it's a more um, broader piece for veteran entrepreneurs, in particular for veteran entrepreneurs. For veteran entrepreneurs, okay. <clears throat> I, I want, if it's okay, we can go back and dig a little bit into the money mindset, because I find that, um, you know, as an as a financial planner and, and working with business owners all the time, it's such a big piece about, um, you know, how success versus how successful you are. It has a lot to do with your interpretation of uh, money and how you feel about money. Um, what was your biggest, what was the biggest aha you had during that journey for yourself uh, about money and your money mindset? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know if there was like one big moment. It was like this little, these little uh, shifts. Um, so when I first started out, first of all, in the military, we would never question whether we were getting paid enough for what we were doing. And for, as a civilian, and when I look back now on some of the things I would do in a week, in those hundred-hour weeks, you know, they were getting paid a a fraction of what people were getting paid in the civilian world. And so I came into entrepreneurship with this willingness to give away way more than anybody on the outside would ever give away in a million years. Mm. So uh, some of the things that my clients were asked, some of the problems that I was solving for my clients, and I get a lot of clients who, for example, for example are not on side with CRA. So I have uh, gifts of negotiation and, um, I would be getting paid like this much compared to after I did the market research. <laughs> they were getting paid. And, and, you know, and then I had no problem raising my prices later on. But in the early days, it was extremely painful. It was extremely painful to separate myself from the people I was serving because I started out serving people that were like me. Mm. So later on, as I developed the the chops and the confidence, and some might say the arrogance, I started to serve people that were affluent. So one of my big aha moments was, came from a background of people where we were taught that it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven, for example. And now you're starting to accumulate wealth and all kinds of stuff will come up on the inside plus all kinds of bias against those affluent people that I'm now serving. So, you know, the clients that I needed to get were rubbing me the wrong way because of inherited attitudes toward them. So that was a huge transition for me because now I became uh, one of those people. 
you know, successful, I have enough money, I enjoy my life. And now people are making assumptions about me based on that. Well, I had to debunk all of that internal stuff. What do you think when you've dealt with probably many, many entrepreneurs, is there a common money mindset issue uh, that you see um, or that's more prevalent than others? Um, I probably don't deal with them on the, you know, in the breadth of engagement that you would do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I do see is a reluctance to charge what you're worth. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there's, there's a lot of people that flip-flop on price, so they don't have standardized pricing. They have a price for this person and a price for that one, and they want to know how much are you making, I'll charge you this much. And so, you know, that's not business-like. Yeah. So whenever when I first start with somebody, we take a deep dive into like what they're doing at present. And if it looks like you're running a little, you know, stall at a, at a market as opposed to a business, then you need to be looking at that. What has been your biggest lesson along the way, Debbie? Um, my, my biggest lesson has been around the networking piece. So I am um, very well connected, very well. I, I have, I went to law school and I got in trouble at law school and I needed somebody to write a character reference for me. That was in 2006. And I did not have anybody to write that reference for me because I was the writer of references for other people. I was the person from my community that people went to to solve problems. So after that event, I vowed I would never be in that position again. So I have people from all levels of organization who, who know who I am from my purposes, not Oh, you know, Debbie's well known across Canada. I mean, I will never be in a position where somebody ever questions my integrity that I wouldn't have 20 people who would be able to stand up and say, um, you know, this, this is a woman of integrity. But the networking piece and people underestimate them, uh, people with resources uh, and people of privilege don't see their privilege. They don't think they're privileged. And there is a lot of resource hoarding going on. Even during COVID, for example, I know uh, even some of my clients who, when there's something that comes down from government, for example, and you're gonna get a little $5,000 grant, there are people that get a phone call. There are people that are left to figure it out on themselves. So my degree is in political science. So I understand power. And I understand pork barreling. And I'm interested in those people who don't have access to the resources getting a little bit closer to the resources. So you see yourself a bit of a conduit then of helping people pull them, almost like pulling them out of uh, obscurity and bringing them to the table. Yes, but I'm not an enabler. So you got to be able to like get your own independence as I show you how to get to the resources. If I have figured it out, I'll show you how to figure it out, but I'm not going to hold your hand through the whole process. So, right. Yeah. You're just going to shine the light. They can choose to take the path or not. Okay. I and I also like to show people who are rewarding resources. I, I like to also hold a mirror up to them and say, look, this is where you're not sharing the love. Mm-hmm. 
so that they know they're privileged and they know that they've included a certain group of people in their privilege, in the spillover of their privilege. There's so much talk about privilege these days, Debbie. So uh, thank you for sharing that piece. When it comes to, um, if you were to talk to a new entrepreneur today, what are the top three things you would tell them that they need to do? I think they need to get themselves into rooms where they are not the smartest person in the room. Whether it's joining, for me, it was joining Toastmasters. So uh, the first time, first of all, I didn't know any people that had ever been to university. So I end up in a Toastmasters room and there's people that are sitting on the Senate at St. Mary's and there's a psychologist and somebody who owns an accounting firm and then there's me and I'm very intimidated by that. But it was there that I learned, first of all, how much we had in common Mm -hmm. uh, when it came to life, but resources started to open up there. And those people have become, you know, friends of mine who've sent me business. So that's job one. Um, I think that programs that teach people how to do a business plan, for example, are missing the mark. I think we need to start by talking about what is your starting position? can you communicate? And by communicate, I mean phoning somebody up and telling them that they're, uh, you're not going to be able to pay your rent on Monday and you need them to hold off a week or so. Or phoning somebody else to say, can you cover that rent for me? Or phoning someone and saying, my prices have just increased, you know, three times what I, would, uh, what I used to charge. Uh, you have my blessing or whatever it is that you need uh, with regards to communication. The pieces that I focus on, you know, the mindset piece, money and growth mindset, networking and communication are mission critical to business success. Where do you think, um, so those three things would be what you would advise people to dig into. On the communication side, um, I I love the fact you talked about picking up the phone because I feel like it's a little bit of a lost art. Do you still pick up the phone, Debbie? Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it's the thing that separates me, I think, or separates people from all of those posts on Facebook and on Twitter and podcasts and everything else is somebody picks up the phone. I picked up the phone about six months ago to, with the intention of leaving a message for a businesswoman who was, who was enjoyed many years of business success. And, um, She's not someone that you would normally see. She's busy with her business. She has locations in three provinces. And I thought, I would really love to talk to that woman, like, because I'm scaling. And when I called the number, she picked up the phone. And she had a half hour conversation with me on her own phone. I told her how shocked I was, that I wasn't really prepared to talk to her today. And then we set up a time to talk another time. You know, that would never have happened. She expressed that. Should nobody ever calls me unless they're looking to buy something or, yeah. you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, the phone is my, is my friend. That's awesome. Uh, I think that sometimes it's easier to hide behind just sending an email versus reaching out and doing that, having that conversation. What okay. has been your biggest success so far, Debbie, on entrepreneur land? Oh, uh, I I think my biggest success is not, uh, uh, you know, picking up a contract and getting paid $25,000 was like humongous. My first year in business, I made $5,000. When I made $50,000, it cost me $52,000 to make it. 
I don't mind telling you that. Uh, my biggest success is being invited to the table. So I'm on a task force with the Halifax Chamber of Commerce right now. And um, uh, when they invited me to do that, you know, it felt like somebody noticed that I'm yeah. out here in this big space. And, uh, and I knew how to leverage that, you know, how to leverage that membership. I uh, had to leverage that volunteer opportunity. So it wasn't just a case of me serving and not getting a return on that investment of time. And I've recent, recently been contacted by a national organization. Now, I don't, I don't mean these uh, great big networks of entrepreneurs, but somebody who's closer to resources has just reached out to ask if I could, if I would think about coming onto a national body who trains entrepreneurs. Well, that's fascinating. That must be really exciting. It, 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 it means that everything's coming together, that people are hearing about what you're doing. Yes, and what they don't know is this is not the end of the road for me. So I'm still in the journey of figuring out what I'm supposed to be doing. So <laughs> <laughs> I did figure out we didn't have to be mature till we're 65 when we get mature discounts. Right. Now, you see, you still got a few years left. <laughs> Isn't it <laughs> That's awesome. I am going to open up the floor to some questions right now from our audience. Is there um, anyone who would like to pop in? Uh, Melanie, you're up. Um, hi, that's wonderful. Debbie, I've heard your story um, a couple of times and I've enjoyed it every single time. It is inspirational and I love how you speak with authenticity um, about the things that didn't go well and how you push through them. And so it, once again, I've enjoyed that. <laughs> so thank you. Um, you talked about learned helplessness. Um, and I was thinking, you know, what, to your mind, what do you think a person needs either intrinsically or external support wise? Because we all, all feel helpless, especially as entrepreneurs sometimes <laughs> like, oh my yeah. gosh, how am I gonna? So what, what do you think are the critical things that we could look to scaffold ourselves with um, that help you get, make sure that you don't go from feeling helpless to that learned I am helpless and, and disempowered. Yes, so um, I just put in a quote to, to do a keynote at a business conference. And I, I put in an extra piece about why they should choose me instead of one of the, you know, hotshot hot shot speakers that are out there. And I think what people need, people sitting in the seats, is they need to hear about this thing so they can get curious and go away and think, I wonder what that is. Mm. And uh, do I have it? Am I ready to give up, but there's something else? And then I wonder if I could talk to her. And, you know, I sell business coaching, but beyond that, I love sitting with people who are, saying, you know, that's it. It's not going to work for me. I'm speaking to a couple of guys right now in the oil and gas industry, and they've lost their jobs, of course. And they had big lives built around those jobs. And they don't want to scale back their lives, but they believe they're helpless. And I have sent them something to read on learned helplessness, because the only model they've ever had is it's the end of the road for my work life, as opposed to I have an option to reinvent myself. So I think you need to go away and read about it and then get curious about it. 
And then also have somebody like yourself, like that, like the person who asked you or told you back when, you know, with all of the knowledge you have, I'd be a millionaire. Yes. And that got you curious. And then you're doing that for other people. So it sounds like it, it does help to have that external perspective. Yeah. Right. And as, um, you know, as adult learners, the first place we step into is that conscious incompetence. Mm -hmm. And who likes to be there? I know I'm no good at what I'm doing. (laughs) Who wants to be there? That's where you need a coach to come alongside. And unfortunately, you know, um, in where we are, they value uh, education like 40 hour training plans as opposed to coaching and in coaching uh, I use the apprenticeship model which means that I do one and then I show you how to do one and you do one and I show you how to fix what you did um, you know and you learn to build this confidence uh-huh. uh, unfortunately we don't have that kind of system here unless you have to pay for it and people are not always in a good position to pay for it if they're in learned helplessness that's right and then that's where privilege that you touched on comes into as well correct yeah oh thank you that's an interesting point there for sure um if you want to ask a question please unmute yourself oh there we go christina come on in hi good morning good morning Thanks for sharing your story this morning, Debbie. Oh my goodness. Um, I was sort of in and out because I was driving my son to school. So, um, so I didn't, I didn't unfortunately catch everything, but I will listen to the recording. Um, but I, I, I wonder what I'm, what I'm thinking about is how would you define the word disability? And the reason I ask you that is because you talked about, I, I just loved this. You said that you realize that your learned helplessness was the biggest disability that, that, that you had. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really powerful comment to make. Um, so how would you define disability? How would you like to see that, that word defined in the world? Um, it's very interesting. So usually when I speak, I talk about living with disabilities. Uh, when I first became disabled, and I'm legally blind, and I have the mental health challenges or the comorbidity that comes along with dealing with a major, um, major disability. And it was, uh, I have friends who've been born blind, and uh, their journey is not like a high performer who depends on their driver's license, uh, who acquires a disability and loses a career. That's a totally different trajectory. So when I was first disabled, I had all of the biases that people who are not disabled have uh, against disabled people, only now they were directed at myself. And I saw myself as extremely disabled. Uh, contrast that with where I am today. And I see that I have uh, limitations in certain areas, but I have so many abilities. It's absolutely remarkable. So I live with disabilities um, as opposed to being the disability. But I think we all live with disabilities. Yeah. We're not all familiar with what, we're not all aware. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it's not to play down. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it's a it's a tricky topic um, in some ways because it's you know you don't want to minimize someone else's experience by, um, and that's not my intent by talking by asking that question. But 
Um, but I do think that that there are lots of things that can disable us as, as humans. And um, I, I used to work with, a, I'm a teacher, I used to work with a little girl who was visually impaired. She had 1% in one eye and, and zero vision in the other. And it, it inspired me to write a little book about her that was called All the Things I Can't Do, because really she was doing it all and more. So the things she couldn't do were things like she would never probably be a pilot. You know, she would never, but she, she could do. Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting a little yes. choked up. Yes, absolutely. And that's a journey. I think when you acquire disability, it's a journey that you have to make like to get to that place. And it's not an easy journey. I'm doing an MBA now. I'm, I'm now a knowledge addict and I'm doing my <laughs> MBA with hope to doing, um, a PhD in my field, which is uh, minority entrepreneurship. And what I want to talk about, or, or what I was going to say to your question was, uh, some of my colleagues in Ireland, they describe it as diff, D-I-F, diff ability, not diff disability, but diff ability. Right. It's a different way of encountering the world. Yes. Interesting. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your perspective this morning. You've shone a bright light in my day. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Debbie shot is also when you look at disability and everything else, it becomes about how you approach that. So it's a mindset issue again. Mindset seems to keep being one of our recurring themes here this morning. <laughs> and money. And money. <laughs> and money. Oh, yes, indeed. I wanted to ask you a question because one of the things you brought up that I thought was interesting, because I see this a lot too in my work, is the um underpricing or undervaluing of the services and products that you're offering. And I feel that that is part of it, I think, is attached to um, if someone says no, they're saying no to you versus the product and service. What do you think are the biggest barriers to product to pricing appropriately and how can they be addressed? Well, I think that, you know, if we look at some of the reasons why we price our ourselves too low it's we're looking at the employee model so as an employee for example uh, i'll use mechanic as a, as an example i have a friend who's a mechanic and they make uh, 30 bucks an hour which is nice but you can imagine that business owner if he only charged what he was going to pay that employee uh, how would he ever get a nice shop and and all of the bells and whistles that you need to run a business so I think we get stuck in thinking like an employee in the early days. Mm -hmm. And another thing that happens, and I find it's more gendered, but it happens more in women, is that we don't think we're as good as she is who's, or he is who's charging all of that, you know, all of that money. I have to say, when I first started to raise my prices, I didn't feel confident doing it. The confident came later. You know, confidence yeah. is a byproduct of bold action. And it, it came later. I knew I, I knew intellectually I needed to raise my prices. I knew intellectually that I knew enough to be able to compete toe-to-toe -to -toe with people at a certain level. Um, I just needed to do it, and the confidence would come. And it only took a few times. Right. You know. Um, so yeah, I, it, it is a process. It isn't a, an easy answer. It's one of those things that you need to do it and then feel the benefit and you need to trust whoever is leading you through that process. How do you deal with no's? Oh, I'm cool with that. I, 
probably you forget, right? You forget the pain of childbirth and you forget the early days of business. In the early days, they were definitely rejections of me. Uh, I've had people come alongside in the early days and get a quote for coaching services. And they took that elaborately written quote because I'm a great writer and took it to another business coach and they used it. And they hired that business coach. So I took no personally, but I don't take no personally now. It's, I know they're not ready for me. If they're like, no, no, that's too much. Or they're not ready for me. And um, the price that I charge is only a fraction of the return on investment because I like to go where the big money is. And if I'm coaching you, you're going there too. So. <laughs> I love that confidence. That's awesome. Um, are there any other questions out there? Colleen, Kelsey, Wayne? Nope. I could do another one. Okay, Melanie, go. Okay. So um, I was really interested. It's come up a couple of times. You talked about, I'm just referring to my notes here, but um, you had to grow into a love of money. And in the beginning, you, um, we, we often, and you had a love of serving. Yes. And um, it's interesting that love to serve and it's, it's uh, one of the like love languages they talk about is like giving, right? Um, so how did you, and I know you, you talked about having to come into that, growing into a love of money. Where do you think that tension comes from in the beginning? Like, why can't we love to serve and charge what we're worth as well? Is it because we have the word serve in there that it's supposed to be free and that if we attach a value to it, it's somehow less worthy or what do you think? No, that's interesting. You're making me think now. Uh, I mean, I really don't know. I know that I was conditioned from my childhood. I, we had never had any money. We had all kinds of judgment around money. So I know in my particular circumstance, it was that. I've met women who grew up in families where they never controlled the money. And I think Barbara Stanny, whose father owned H&R Block, mentions this in one of her talks. And uh, it's about how she'd never had the stewardship of money. So she became terrible with money because that was a male job. So, uh, you know, it was gendered in that way. I think we all come about our biases in different ways, but the way forward is the same for everybody. It's about, you know, um, starting small and then growing into it. And I, I mean, I'm, I get judged because I love making money. I think that people who say money can't buy happiness have never been poor because, you know, it really makes me happy if I could let my daughter go to school or join volleyball or whatever it is, or buy groceries like that. That really sends me right over the moon. If I can feed her, stay in my house. Um, I, so I think it's okay to, uh, to love making money. What I do know is that having money in and of by itself is not going to make you happy. Having enough money is not going to solve your problems. Like I think Wendy and I agree on a broader definition of, uh, of wealth in that, uh, you know, it's the wealth of, of your friendships and community and, and the things that you do and, and the way you're inspired and fulfilled in your business. And, and then it doesn't hurt if you have a lot of zeros on in your bank. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. One, of my, one of my favorite coaches from another coach I had, uh, Dan Sullivan, if you can solve a problem by writing a check, you don't have a problem. <laughs> <laughs>
Exactly. <laughs> Debbie, what haven't I asked you or that we should have talked about uh, to, to, to round this up? Uh, no, honestly, I, I do believe we've talked about everything. We've touched on it all. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much, Debbie, for coming to The Real Bottom Line. And the real bottom line today is, is that confidence is a byproduct of action. So thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you. thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.